If you have your Bibles, we'll be in 2 Peter. We'll be in chapter 1, starting in verse 16. And we're going to finish this chapter out today uh, in this service, good Lord willing. And what you see here is a, uh, the brilliance of the Holy Spirit. And what I mean by that is, is if you remember, and we've mentioned this so many times, working through the book of Romans especially, is that there were no chapter and verse divisions. It was just a continuous letter. And this is important because the way that he's going to end this chapter is going to springboard into chapter 2. And we're going to spend a lot of time in chapter 2 over the next several weeks, possibly. Because one of the greatest threats and one of the greatest dangers that we see to the church today is discussed in chapter 2. Speaking about false prophets, false teachers, apostates, and heretics. These are the ones who proclaim to be Christians, who claim to teach truth, but simply don't. And they have been around in the Old Testament. They were present in the New Testament. They've been present ever since the New Testament. They're present today. And until the last day on this planet, we will encounter these people. It doesn't take long to get on uh, all the outlets of social media or YouTube or whatever it is. And you see these teachers... These false prophets, the NAR, the, these people that claim so many things in the name of God, that God finds no pleasure with them. And there's great weight and wrath and judgment that are awaiting them. The Bible actually tells that the darkness of judgment, the darkness of this, is reserved for them. And it's one of the greatest threats that the church faced then, and he faces today. And how chapter 2 is going to set up is it's going to be the words of truth versus the words that are lies. The words that bring hope versus the words that don't. And what Peter's going to do here under the leadership of the Holy Spirit is before he goes into this next section on the rise of these false prophets, what does he want to do? He wants to lay the foundation of what truth is. He wants to lay the foundation of what the church is to stand on and it's simply the Word of God. It's going to be the Word of truth versus the Word of these people that is not truth. It'll be the words of death versus the words of life. And this is why Peter ends this chapter telling these readers and us that the Word of God is where we find our anchor. It is why the church... Even in the Reformation, if you know the solas at all, there's one that we hold to, sola scriptura, which means that it is by Scripture alone as the rule of faith in the church. This is our authority. There's nothing higher than this because it is inspired by God and is the truth of God. And everything that comes our way and everything that is taught, wherever it is, has to be examined under the lens of this, not under the lens of our feelings, our emotions, popular opinion, but under the lens of this. And before Peter goes into this next chapter, he's going to tell you, without a shadow of doubt, the words that he is holding to and the words that we have in our hands today are the divine and inspired Word of God. So it's beautifully placed here, and we're going to discuss the Word of God today. Let's begin in verse 16. 
It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no, scripture, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You just heard great truths by the Apostle Peter as he begins to declare with all certainty this word that we hold in our hands that is from God and God Himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you, Lord, that in the middle of a dark world, in the middle of everyone's opinion, in the middle of uncertainty at times, we have an anchor for the soul. We have your word that is truth. It is the source of truth, and in it is all truth. It is how we're sanctified, and it is what we're to cling to. Lord, let us today understand the weight of your word, the seriousness of your word. Lord, as it comes not from man, but from the lips of the Lord of heaven and earth. Help us today, Lord, to understand this more. And Lord, help us to heed your instructions. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing that Peter is going to tell these readers is that he did not follow cleverly devised tales when he made known to them the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. You know, you go through the New Testament especially, and you will see many verses that warn against tales and myths and fables. And maybe you've seen this, you've seen people do this, that as they begin to tell a story that's passed down, that sometimes they begin to embellish it just a little bit. You know, you fishermen know this. We'll just leave it at that. The myths, the tales. And sometimes the story changes as it goes down from person to person. You know, I remember that game that we used to play as a kid. I'll never forget this. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. We'd go to somebody's house and I'd be like, hey, can we, can we play that game? Chinese telephone is what we knew it as. I don't know if anybody else knows that, where you would say something and it would go around the room and before you got to the end, it didn't even make sense. But this is what happens with myths and tales and fables that as it gets passed on, sometimes it gets elaborated on or, or sometimes we find that there's not truth in these things. And there's so many verses in the New Testament that speak of so many people holding on to myths and fables and things that are not true. And I've listed a few of them here on your paper. And 2 Timothy chapter 4 is the first one. 
And we're going to get into this a little bit as we get into the false prophets in the next chapter. But listen to what Timothy is told by Paul in this last chapter that Paul will write in his life. It says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, which is the Word of God. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. You see that today. We're in the last days. We talked about that many weeks ago. That no one wants to hold to the truth or listen to the truth because we're going to discuss this tonight too, that the truth is not always pleasant. And the truth hurts. And the truth calls for repentance and conviction as opposed to the tickling of the ears, which is what false prophets do today. And he says, there will be a time when they're looking to myths and they're looking to the things that are not of God. And that's what Peter is telling them here in this verse. He's saying, I am not declaring to you something that's not true. I'm not following a myth. I'm not following a fable. I'm not following anything that I'm making up and making more grandeur in my words to make you believe me. I'm not telling you anything that's not true. And I will take it a step farther. How do I know that it's true? I was eyewitness of his majesty and his glory. Think about how many things Peter saw in his life. Peter had such a unique experience, didn't he? That Peter saw the day that he was called to follow Christ. He saw that he was out all night in, in the shallow water in the middle of the night, which was the prime time to catch fish at the Sea of Galilee. And he had spent all night out there fishing, a professional fisherman. And he was cleaning his nets as they'd caught nothing. But what happens the next day? Someone gets in his boat. They go out to the middle of the deep in the middle of the day and their nets are busting forth. And he sees the glory of God and he falls to his knees and he says, get away from me. I'm unclean. I don't deserve to be in your presence. And what does Christ say? Come follow me. And he left everything he had. He left the boat there. He left the net there. He left it all behind and he followed Christ. He could have said, I was a witness to that. He could have said, I was an eyewitness to one stormy night when I thought I saw a ghost. But it was just the Son of God walking on the water. And I was eyewitness that he walked on the water. And you'll never believe me. But for a brief moment, I did too. But then I quickly fell and began to sink. But he picked me up and put me back in the boat. I could tell you that. I was an eyewitness to that. I was an eyewitness to when they came to arrest him. I was there because I'm not proud of this story, but I chopped off a guy's ear. As they come to arrest Christ, Peter chopped off the ear of one of the priest servants. Jesus picks the ear back up and puts it back on and heals it. Peter was an eyewitness to that. Peter was an eyewitness to Christ being betrayed three times. He was an eyewitness to that. He was an eyewitness to the death of Christ. And yes, he was also an apostle. And one of the qualifications to be an apostle, if you remember from the first chapter of the book of Acts, was what? You had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Peter was. Remember? John outran him there. You know that story. John doesn't let us forget that. 
He was an eyewitness to all these things. But what he begins to share with these people to discuss the, the majesty and the glory that he was witness to, he points to the Mount of Transfiguration. If you want to turn there, we can briefly look at that story in Matthew 17. And what Peter's going to tell them is that this is the truth. He's an eyewitness to that. Because Peter didn't die for a fairy tale. And Peter didn't give his life for the cause of Christ. He was not a martyr for a myth or a fable. But for the truth of God. What's interesting here is the chapter leading up to the transfiguration. In chapter 16, something amazing happens. Is that Peter confessed that he is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the one that was spoken about in the Old Testament. And if you're in chapter 17, if you, your eyes want to briefly go into chapter 16, and, and verse 13 is where it starts. And this is where Jesus asked Peter, who do, you, who do people say that I am? Who, who, who do they say the Son of Man is? And he said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus becomes personal and he says, but who do you say that I am? What's interesting here is Peter's response. How many times have you and I, in this last several weeks, months, years, proclaimed that without the Holy Spirit of God, we cannot understand the truths of God? You're not a Christian because you're smarter than someone else. You're a Christian because God called you and chose you and changed your soul when you were running from Him. And if we're not careful, we'll miss that. Yeah, I realized the truths of the Bible. I realized the truths of God. I came to this wonderful decision on my own in my own flesh. Even this account of Peter tells you something so opposite of that. Listen, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ or the Messiah. Let me clear this up real quick because some people get confused with this. Jesus' last name is not Christ. Okay? This, is, this, is, this needs to be cleared up. His last name is not Christ. It's not first name Jesus, last name Christ. Christ is the New Testament account of the Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, that's Jesus the Messiah. In the Old Testament, they knew him as the Messiah. In the New Testament, they call him the Christ or the anointed one that is to come. So he says, you are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Look at Jesus' response in verse 17. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Uh-oh. Wait a minute. But, but you, you acknowledge this, Peter. How could it not be from you, Peter? He says it's not flesh and blood that revealed this to you. But read on. What revealed it to you? But my Father, who is in heaven, it wasn't your flesh. It wasn't your own ability that revealed it to you, Peter, but it was revealed to you by the Father in heaven. What a powerful verse. And I will say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. But here comes the mistake by Peter. If you'll look a little farther, that uh, in, down in verse uh, 21, 22, and 23, Peter gets rebuked, doesn't he? 
Why? Because Jesus is telling them that he must suffer these things. He must suffer death because it was prophesied in the Old Testament. And their idea of the Messiah was different. They believed that the Messiah shouldn't have to suffer. Why would this Messiah who's going to come and conquer all things, why would he have to suffer at the hands of men? And he says, you surely won't suffer like that. That is when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the interest of God, but, but man's. Because it's prophesied that he would suffer. Isaiah 53 says that he must suffer all these things. So he just reveals this to them. And then they don't want him to suffer and they're having a hard time with this. And then here comes chapter 17. It says six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them to, upon a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son. With whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, here's the proper response. You ready? They fell down, face down to the ground and were terrified. How many verses in the Bible, how many scriptures in the Bible say that when people see a, just a little bit of the glory of God, their reaction is on the ground, on their knees, in fear, in terror. We see this when he calmed the storm, when they were in the boat. We discussed this just a, maybe last week, that when they were terrified of the storm, they were more terrified of the one who calmed the storm. It is a holy fear of this God. It's a holy fear when you see who he is. And right here, Peter, James, and John, the, the glory of God, the glory of the incarnation, the glory of the Son is revealed to them in this brief moment. And it says that his face shone like the sun, his garments white as snow. And they go to the ground. You see, the incarnation was a veil, if you will, in a sense, of the divine nature of Christ. If you remember, he's truly God, truly man. The divine nature mixed with humanity, and they're in one being, the God-man, Christ Jesus. And as he's walking around the streets of Jerusalem and in Samaria and Judea, his face isn't shining. He's not lit up like an angelic being. and He's not lit up to where he draws all attention to himself. He is as the appearance, as Isaiah 53 would say, is nothing to be attracted to him. Nothing fancy about him. He looks like one of the locals. But all along, as he's walking, he's the divine. He's the one who's been there with the Father from all eternity past. It's the Logos, the Spirit of the living God. It is Christ in all of His divine nature in flesh. And in this moment, He reveals the glory of Himself. 
and puts them on their face. Peter's there. Peter's an eyewitness to this account. And he says, I heard a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son to whom I'm well pleased. This is the voice of the father. Where else have we heard, this is my beloved son to whom I'm well pleased? Well, we hear this at the baptism of Jesus. And for those who do not believe in the Trinity, there are, again, false teachers and false prophets today that are thousands and thousands of people in their churches that claim that, well, it's not one being and three, or one being and three divine persons. It's actually one, and it's, he shifts into modes. There's a list of famous, quote-unquote, preachers that would, you would know if I told you their names. They believe in modalism, that he just shifts. He can't be the father and the son at the same time. So when he's the father, he's not in the form of the son. He's not in that mode. And when he's the son, he can't be the father. How silly is that? And what do we do with the baptism of Christ? Because Christ is physically on this earth being baptized. The Holy Spirit has descended upon him. And from heaven, we hear the voice of the father saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Can you imagine that? This is my beloved son. In his baptism, as he starts this earthly ministry to fulfill all righteousness, as he has humbled himself and come and took on the form of man, and he is beginning the task to redeem those whom I've given him. And as he starts this ministry, the father with this thunderous voice says, that's my son, the one I've loved before all of creation, the one I've loved from all eternity past. I'm so pleased with him. This is my beloved son. And he is following these steps to fulfill the purpose to which he was sent. He said that at the baptism. And here he is on this mountain saying the same thing. This is my beloved son. Yes, he's going to suffer. Yes, he's the Messiah. And yes, shortly, all the things that were prophesied about him, all the pain, all the suffering, all those things, including death at the hands of wicked men, it will come to pass. And I'm so pleased with him. He's fulfilling the purpose he's coming to do, and he's doing perfectly what he was sent to do. This is my beloved son, the one, again, that I loved from the foundation of the world. And now... I see what he's doing, and I'm pleased, and I love him. Where else do we see that the Father's pleased with the Son? We see it at the cross. We see it at the death of his Son to redeem his people. We find this in John chapter 10. In verse 17 and 18, what does it say? The reason that the Father loves and is pleased with the Son is because the Son, what? Lays his life down for the sheep. He lays it down on his own accord that no one took it from him. He laid it down. And that is the reason the Father's pleased with him. All along, the Father's pleased with him before the world began. The Father's pleased with him when he enters this world. The Father's pleased with him at the baptism of his son. The Father's pleased with him on the cross. And the Father's pleased with him at, at his death and his burial because of the resurrection. We have proof of that. If that sacrifice of the Son was not accepted and it was not approved by the Father, 
then he would still be in the grave. If he was not the worthy sacrifice, if he was uh, sinful or had one blemish, or that sacrifice was not pleasing to the Father, then he would have never been raised from the grave. But because he has been raised from the grave, in that resurrection from the dead, the Father would be saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. He came and did it all lived the perfect life, died the perfect death. And he was raised to life. And here, this is the account that Peter gives. I'm not telling you tales. I'm not telling you myths. How do I know? Because I was an eyewitness to his glory. I was an eyewitness to his majesty. I was an eyewitness to the glory of the Son of God that put me on my face and brought me to the fear of the Lord that day. I was an eyewitness to this. Look what he goes on to say. In verse 18, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What an utterance that was. Can you imagine? Hearing the Father speak. The Bible says that no one ever ever seen the Father. He's the invisible God, is what Colossians chapter 1 will tell us. But Christ is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see the Father, and you want to see His heart, and you want to see His nature, then you look at the Son. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 says. He's the radiance and the representation of the Father. But no one's seen the Father. Can you imagine that voice? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Let me just stop for a second. When you and I stand before God that day, will he be pleased with you? Will he allow you entrance into his kingdom? And if so, why? Well, because when he looks at you, if you're a Christian, he sees the flawless, perfect life and work of his son. The same son that he looked at and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And as we have been adopted into his family, as we now have been shown the same love from the father that was given to the son, as we now have been uh, given this amazing gift to where we can then call out to the father, Abba, father, just like the son, When he looks at us that day, he's not pleased with us in our own righteousness, in our own merit, in our own works. But if you're a Christian and the imputation of Christ's righteousness, the one that God was pleased with is upon you, and he'll be pleased with you through his son. That's how you will enter heaven that day. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And if that son and his righteousness is covering you, then you'll be pleased that day and you will have entrance into heaven. You see, it's all to the Son. And Peter says, I saw it and I heard it with my own eyes and ears. And Peter was unique. Peter had a Trinitarian life, right? Because he had something unique that we don't have, we've never had. Peter heard the voice of the Father from heaven. Have you? 
No. Some will tell us that we hear God audibly. We're going to talk about them in chapter 2. But he heard the voice of the Father, and he walked with the Son for three and a half years. And then in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, he was indwelled by the Spirit. Every being or every person of the Trinity, Peter had a unique experience with. He says, listen, we've heard that. We've saw that. In verse 19, starts to tell us the importance of what they saw on the mountain that day. So, he starts this verse by looking to the previous verses and saying, because we saw him, because we heard him, we have the prophetic word made more sure. What is he talking about? What, what is he talking about here? Now, because we've seen him, we have the prophetic word made more sure? Yes. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures that had prophesied about this coming Messiah. You see, so many times we want to, and hopefully now we don't do this, especially as we move through the types and shadows and we see that Christ is on all the pages of the Old Testament. It's, it's a foreshadowing of what's coming in the New Testament. They are joined together. And here on this mountain, Peter's saying, listen, what we saw in the incarnation, what we saw in Christ, the things that we witnessed of God himself on this earth, they are another attestation that the prophetic word of the Old Testament has been made sure. We can't, we can't do away with the Old Testament and say it doesn't matter. It is pointing to Christ. That's what Peter's saying. He says, the fact that Christ is here, the fact of who He is, the fact of His glory that we're seeing, now we look back to the Old Testament, and yes, we believed it, but now we just have another way to show you more clearly that it's made more sure. The things of the Old Testament that have been spoken of Christ, they come into pass. You see what Peter's doing here, because in chapter 2, the things that the false teachers say and the apostates say, they don't come to pass and they're not true. He's setting up the comparison here so beautifully at the end of this chapter. Did the Old Testament say that Christ was going to come? Yes, it did. Hey, did it say that he would be from the line of David? Yes, it did. Did he say where he would be born at? Sure. Yeah. Micah tells that. Chapter 5, verse 2, he said he'd be born in Bethlehem. Did he say that he would suffer? Did he say he would die? Of course. Did he say he would be raised from the dead? Yes. So now, Peter's saying the glory and the majesty that I've seen, not only through all these three and a half years, but on this mountain, this glory of this, this son who just for a moment moved this veil back. And I saw with my eyes and heard with my ears that this is God. This is the divine majesty and power of God. I've seen it. I've heard it. And it's just a further attestation that the Old Testament word has been made more sure. You see, in a real sense, people say, well, what's the big deal of the Old Testament? Well, if you were heard any of the types and shadows, you know the big deal of it. It's pointing to Christ. And in a real sense, if there was no Old Testament, then the New Testament wouldn't make much sense, would it? Here comes some random guy out of Bethlehem claiming to be God. Okay. Who's this guy? 
Where'd he come from? Thousands of years, hundreds of years, he's going to come. This is what's going to happen. This is where he's going to be from. This is what he's going to do. This is his lineage. He's from Judah. He's going to be from the line of David. He's going to... All these things of the Old Testament are being prophesied and spoken of, even in Genesis where he says that he's going to crush the, the head of the serpent. He did that on the cross. All these things are made 100% sure in the Son of God being on earth in all of His glory and all of His majesty. This is what Peter's saying. Now we have the Old Testament prophets as well as the recorded account of the New Testament apostles and disciples. And this gives us even further assurance to which the things they spoke about are true. And we see this is meaningful because we know that the foundation of the church is the prophets and the apostles, with Christ being the cornerstone. And at the bottom of your page, I think Augustine, this quote that he had, I like it. Here's what it says. The New Testament in the Old revealed. The Old Testament in the New. Oh, I've got them backwards. There's a typo in your sheet. It should be the New Testament in the Old Testament concealed. I apologize for that. But what he's saying is the New Testament is in the Old Testament, but it's concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament, and it's revealed. You see what he's saying there? You go to the Old Testament, and you will find that the things that are going to be accomplished in the New Testament, they're there. In the Old Testament, you can find the New Testament, but it's concealed. And then you go to the New Testament and you see that the Old Testament that was spoken of these things is now revealed. There's beauty in the harmony of these scriptures. And this is the point that Peter's getting at. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, not myths, not fables, but by the Old Testament scriptures. And then the eyewitness accounts. And then he says that, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. And then he gives... An exhortation here, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. You see, even Peter, 2,000 years ago, the message that Peter is going to give these people rings true to us today. Take heed to the Word of God, take heed to the Scripture. He's going to end this chapter saying, you must know the truth, the infallibility, the power, and the majestic glory that is in the word that you have. And you to hold on to it with all your heart and with all your might because we live in a dark world and it's the only light we have. And as people come to attack the truth and don't think they won't come to attack the truth, an attack on God's word is not a new thing. You don't believe me? In Genesis chapter 3, you see the attack on God's word. The serpent comes and he says, did God really say that? Even in our first account of sin, we see that the the method that is used is to attack the word of God. So let me ask you this. If someone came to you and started speaking things that sounded really religious, sounded really good, and they said, Did the Word of God really say that? Well, 
would you say? You see, this is why knowing and learning and being diligent in Scripture is everything. Because when the falseness comes, and one of the methods that these false people use is they use enough religious words. You know, they're the wolves that are in the sheep's clothing. They use enough wordage just to, to make it sound religious. They make it sound good. It makes it biblical and it's out when it comes out of the mouth. But it's just like the serpent who just changes a few little things. Did he really say that? He did not say that. And you see the attack. And if we as Christians do not know what the Word of God says, if we don't know the truth, then you know what happens. You can get tripped up and you may fall for the lie. That's why I said you'd be all the more diligent. You'd do so well to pay attention to this. You see, because it's going to sound close a lot of times. It's going to sound good a lot of times. But those words that promise life for those who are not speaking the true word of God, even though it sounds good, even though it sounds like it's going to bring life, the ending of those words is death and hopelessness and despair. Does the Word of God really say that? Here's the, one of the greatest heartbreaks of the church worldwide is that so many Christians at that point would say, I don't know. I don't know. What you're saying sounds pretty good. Makes sense. Sounding like you know what you're talking about. But I don't know. Has that ever happened to you? You live long enough, it will. Started in the garden. Tonight we're going to talk about how it was prevalent in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament and we find it today. As me and Jeremy were talking about the other night... You don't have to turn on your TV to find these people. You can find them in your very midst and even in churches in this area. Does it really say that? Let us never be a church that when that, any question of that nature gets posed to us that we say, I don't know. You see, this is what Peter's telling them. So we have this prophetic word, every word of God in the Old Testament, in the incarnation of Christ, all these prophecies, all these things, they have been made sure because he's standing here in front of me and I'm seeing his glory and I'm hearing from the Father. It's true. And he's saying to these people, because it's first century AD, they didn't have the New Testament then, go to the Old Testament. And cling to it with all your might. Cling to it. Isn't that something? That the thing that Peter tells the church to do is something that some churches don't even believe that we should read. Kind of like confirming our election. We read that last week. There's people that don't believe in election. And Peter says, be all the more diligent to confirm your election. Do you love the Old Testament? Do you cling to the word? Is it your anchor? Is it your hope? Because every word in there you can take to the bank. This is what he's telling these people. 
We've got it made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Now, there's a couple different interpretations of the ending of that verse, and I think that both of them can work very beautifully together. The first thing he says here is he says that this word is a lamp shining in a dark place. When I read that the first time, do you know what, do you know what came to my mind? If any of you have ever graced the doors of a church during vacation Bible school, and you, you know what I'm going to tell you. There will be three individuals lined up here in the front. You'll have a Bible. You'll have a Christian flag. And then what's, you'll have the American flag. And when you pledge allegiance to the Bible, what do you say? A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's what Psalm 109 or 119, 105 says. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You see, this world is dark, isn't it? I mean, think about what the Bible says. When He rescues us, what does He rescue us out of? The kingdom of darkness into light. His kingdom is light. He, he says that we're children of the light, those whom He saved and rescued. But this world is a place of darkness. This place is a world of evil. And, and just even recently, some of the commercials I've seen on TV, I just looked at Taylor and I said, this is pure evil. This is unbelievable. We live in a world that seems to be getting darker and darker every day, doesn't it? Evil is running rampant, and, and it seems like that people just invent new ways of evil. More perverse, more dark. And sometimes if we're not careful, even though we're children of the light, even though we are saved and rescued out of this darkness by God, if we're not careful, we wander around our life and we're stubbing our toe and tripping over all things because our lives seem dark. Why? Because we forgot to take the light of His Word with us when we travel. You ever been in that point of life? I don't see things very clearly. I don't know which way's up and which way's down. I keep stumbling over this sin or that sin, or I keep stumbling over this. Because in a sense, it's like walking in a dark forest and having no flashlight. Would you do that ever? You wouldn't do it on purpose. And what panic would there be if you were in a foreign forest that you didn't know? And you were in the middle, you were in the darkest recesses of this forest. And you've got your flashlight and you, you're finding your way. And all of a sudden, the batteries die. What would be your thoughts? That's good. I'll be all right. I don't need any help. I'll make it back just fine. It's in a real sense what we do. When we don't pick up, we don't read the light of His Word. 
because this world is darkness and we don't know which way is coming next. We don't know the obstacles in our way. We don't know any of this. We were reading Pilgrim's Progress to our kids the other night and oh, a Christian came across the, sloth, or the pond of despair or something along that line, the sloth of despair, the spawn where he got tripped up in the mud, in the muck. It was dark. And so many times that's us. Peter says, listen to me. You'd be well to pay attention to this. Take heed to this with all diligence because this world you're in is a dark place. Don't be arrogant. Don't be boastful. Don't be prideful. And say that you can do it on your own. When you go to work, take the flashlight of his word and let it guide you in every step. In your home life, when you don't see the way that's in front of you, you've got the lamp that lights your path. He will guide you into truth. He will guide you into the right things of Him. How many days have you complained about the darkness and the stumbling and the tripping and left your flashlight at home? Left your light at home? Sounds silly, doesn't it? I would never go into the forest like that, but you go into the evil of this world like that? God help us. Do you see what He's saying? It's a lamp into our feet. He says, pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. That when not only does it illumine your path, not only does it lead you into the right paths instead of the dark paths or the wrong paths, into right choices instead of wrong choices, but it's also the beacon of light to the dark world. Think about this, how many other people that you didn't know about were in that dark forest with you? Groping along, stumbling along, breaking, uh, breaking their ankles and, and hurting themselves as they're tripping over things and falling into mud and falling into despair. Maybe praying, oh, if someone just had a light, I would do anything to see that light. It just so happens that they were in the forest with a Christian. And the Christian knew that he couldn't make it through this world without the lamp into his feet. And as this person is laying on the ground, feeling hopeless and helpless, a beam of light, as you walk by, catches their attention. Do you know what darkness cannot eliminate and conceal? Light. Darkness isn't a real thing. It's the absence of the light. And the only way that their souls and their hearts will see the light is that there's a light shining. And maybe that's you this week. And maybe that's me this week. To where you are not only taking the word of God in your heart, but you're living it out. And when you live it out, what's the Bible say? A city on a hill can't be hidden. You don't take a light, put it under the covering. Why? You let that light shine so that the world can see what? You? No. But they can see the Father which is in heaven and glorify Him. This is light. This is what Peter's saying. This world is dark. It's getting darker. But you've got a light that you never have to worry if the batteries are going out and you never have to worry if it's going to give you perfect light. It is eternal.
It is always shining. It is always leading. And is the beacon that the dark world needs to see. This is what Peter's saying. Pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. When? Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What's he talking about here? Who's this morning star? What is this reference to the morning star? Glad you asked. Numbers 24, verse 17, gives us a little clue in the Old Testament. The New Testament is concealed, and you see it right here. I see him now, but now, and behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down the sons of Sheth. But then we go to the last book of the Bible, and we see what's referenced here as the morning star. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You see, he didn't leave us alone here in this dark world until we reach our eternal state with him. He didn't leave us alone. Not only did he indwell us with his Holy Spirit, but he gave us the words that the Holy Spirit inspired. Yes, the road is tough. Amen. Yes, the way sometimes seems like you can't see two feet ahead of you as the darkness of the world is closing all around you and you're being tested and you're being tried and the way seems tough and the way seems hard. But he's not left you alone. He's given you the light to your feet. And you may be only able to see one inch in front of you, but you're still seeing in front of you. He's still guiding you by his truth and his word. And he says in this dark place, in this earth, hold on to it until that day when you're with the bright and morning star himself. You won't need any light from this earth. You won't need the sun. Why? Because the light of his glory will illumine the whole place. That's the bright and morning star. But he's left us his word as a light to guide us to that place. You're not alone. Don't let this be the last thing you pick up, but let it be the first. Don't let it be the thing that you look for when your batteries of your own worth and your own abilities have run out, and then you try to find a rescue. Hold it. Lean on to it. Be in your mind every day of your life. It's your path. It's your, it's your guidance till you take your final breath. Is that important? Peter said it's made sure. But then we could also see this another way. That before Christ saves us and before we hear the words of God and in the witness of his word, what happens to your soul? You remember the parable of the, four, of the soils? Remember this. There's three soils that are no good. They don't receive the seed, which is the word of God. But one does. Which one does? The good soil. Well, how does it become good soil? Because it's been tilled and cultivated by God in his sovereign, monergistic work of regeneration. Before you hear the Bible, before you hear the gospel, before you hear the truths, God in his sovereign regeneration of your soul has worked the soil of your heart to make it good, to make it ready. So then, when the truth and the beauty of his word, which is the imperishable seed that 1 Peter 1 tells us about, when that seed comes and you hear the words of God and it plants into that soil and that heart that's already been regenerated by God, guess what happens? You bring that faith to Christ.
Christ. And what does it do? What's the status of your heart before regeneration? Darkness. John 3, at the ending of that chapter, or in chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, it says that we're in the darkness. We can't come to the darkness. We're in the, we're in the domain of darkness. But when He regenerates our soul, and His Word made sure, finds a root in our soul that's been regenerated, guess what happens? No more darkness. He speaks to the soul and says, let there be light. And now your heart is a rose to this bright morning star. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And that word takes its root because Christ has regenerated your soul first. You see, so both of these work. This word, this prophetic word, brings life and light into your soul the Son of God, the, the bright morning star, rises in your soul. And then He indwells you with the Holy Spirit. And you are to hold on to His Word until you are with Him on that last day and then through forever. Again, all to the Word of God. And then He ends with these last two verses. He says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Scriptures from God. He used men. He used fallible men. But God is not fallible. He's infallible. And by His divine providence, He allowed His Spirit to carry these men along, move them along, to record the perfect words that He would want us to hear today. God used men as instruments that He would work through to preserve His words. However, Scripture's origin is not of these men. So many times you say, well, I don't agree with Paul. Mm -mm. I don't like what Paul says. You can't do that. You can't say, well, well Paul didn't like women. Look how, look how sexist he is. People say that. Well, I don't like that. Peter, Peter was very harsh. Look at this. You can't say, I don't agree with Peter in the Bible and say anything else, but I disagree with the Word of God. I disagree with God Himself. These aren't these men's own words. He used their styles, he used their, the way that they would write, but he used their bodies and their hands and their minds as he carried them along. They are his words. They are from him. Their origin is from God. They're not from these men. If you don't believe these men, then you don't believe God because God is the one who used these men. These words that you hear in all these books in the Bible, they're not these men's opinions. They're not myths, they're not fables. But you see this last word on the board. Some of you may not be able to see it. I apologize. It's where we find this word is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We see that this word inspired some translations will say God breathed. That's where we get the word theonoustos. God breathed. It is from the lips of our Lord. It is from Him. In all His wisdom, 
in all his flawlessness, in all his incomprehensibility, in all of his perfection, in all his omnipresence, in all of his omniscience, in all of his attributes, in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, these words come from the lips of the Lord. Hebrews 4, 12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's alive. It pierces you. It works in the hearts of men. We must understand this. The word of God is flawless, consistent, truth. It's immutable. Do you believe that? Let me ask you a question before we're about to be done. Do you, and that's truth, everybody's got a different interpretation of almost done though, don't we? Not like the scripture. Let me just say this. Can I, can I say this real quick? That made me think about it, not everybody's interpretation. Do you want to see how to ruin a Bible study really quickly? Can I tell you this? Gather a group of people and say, let's go around the room and tell me what this verse means to everybody. Okay. The Word of God is not open for 50 different interpretations and meanings. Well, here's what I think it means. Now, there are some difficult verses. Don't get me wrong. But we can't just gather and say, well, this means this to me. Well, that really doesn't... No, I don't think he says that there. I don't mean this means something to me here. Bible is true. It may take a little study, it may take a little work, but it's not. Just however it strikes you, however you want it to be, let it be. That's what the false teachers do. That's what the apostates do. They twist the words. They make it what they want. You're going to hear this tonight. It's so amazing. The things that we see on TV today and social media is the exact method that the, these people used thousands of years ago in the Old Testament. We're going to read a verse tonight that says, they are telling the prophets, don't tell us anything hard. Tell us all things that are good. Sound familiar? Yes. Don't tell us things are going to happen bad and we may have to repent. Tell us how good and prosperity filled we're going to be. It's the same thing. The heart hasn't changed on these people. It's amazing. And that's why the Bible is the only source of truth. It's the only source that we hold to. And the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself. Would you agree with that? Can the Holy Spirit lie? Cannot. If the Holy Spirit lies, then God is not God and we have no hope. You'll hear this. Well, the Holy Spirit told me this. God spoke to me and gave me secret divine revelation. And the Holy Spirit's leading me this. And then you go to the Bible and it's opposite of the Bible. Guess what? The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. And if what they're saying is opposite with the Bible, guess what? To believe them is to call the Holy Spirit a liar. And to call the Holy Spirit a liar is to deny God himself. It's serious. Do you think it's the inspired word of God? Do you think it's your light in this dark world? I'm, I'm setting you up and I'm setting myself up, so be careful. Do you believe it's the inspired word of God? Do you believe it's your true light in darkness? Do you believe it's the anchor for your soul? Do you believe it's what gives you peace and instruction and, and sees the will of God more in your life? Do you believe it's what leads you into sanctification? Do you believe it's what gets you through the hardships of life? 
How often do you pick it up? How often do you read that that you've just attested to? You see, he says, don't be just a hearer of the word, but a doer of it. And how will you know how to combat the falseness that's coming your way if you don't know it? And how will you know the will of God if you don't know the Bible? And how will you know who God is if you don't know the Bible? How will you have any light for your path if you don't pick it up? You see, it's easy for us to say these things, isn't it? Ask yourself, how much do I love His Word? How much have I picked it up? How much do I cling to it like it is the words of God straight from His lips? If I asked you all this question, I said, would you do anything to sit down and have a conversation with God? Would you love to hear Him speak to you today? You say, yes, I would. I'd do anything for it. Good. Because He has spoken. And He continues to speak. Theonoustos, from the lips of our Lord. You see the weight of this? The merit of this? That, that Paul is saying it's not something that's a myth. Or Peter, it's not the myth or a fable. It's made sure. This last verse says, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. People say, well, yeah, men wrote the Bible. Let me tell you this. If you honestly interpret the Bible the way it's meant to be interpreted, do you know what the message of this Bible is? Man must decrease. Tell me what man in their flesh is going to write a Bible that says that I've got to decrease. Do you know anybody that's in the flesh that says I've got to decrease? Don't give me glory. Give it to somebody else. No. This is inspired by God himself, and all the words are coming to pass, as he said. But what's interesting here is this last part. He says, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This men moved by the Holy Spirit, this word used for moved in this verse can be translated to carried along. Some translations will say that. And if you look this word up, you will find imagery of the sea the wind, and ships. You see, when the sea and the wind couple together and you see the ship and this vessel that's out there, the vessel, the ship, is at the mercy of the wind. The winds blow and it starts to throw the ships off course. It is dependent on the wind for the path to which it will go. And this is the imagery we have here as these men. They were like the ships, if you will. That God, through His Holy Spirit, as that wind spoke into their life and led them in their course and led them in their words and led them in their ways to write the words from His lips. What an imagery this is. In the middle of the sea, the wind is what carried these ships along. And the Holy Spirit is what carried these men along to record the words that were God-breathed. What's interesting about this is this is still the case today. It, it, because in John chapter 3, verse 8, this analogy that we just referenced here of being carried along, we find extra merit in it in John chapter 3, talking about being born again. And he says this, The wind blows where it wishes... And you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit is sovereign. The Spirit is not dependent on anyone. 
The Spirit can invade the lives of anyone that it wants to. He wants to. He moves and you don't know. He comes and regenerates this soul because that's the plan. And you don't know where he's going and you don't know who he's going to go to. And you see that as he's talking about regeneration, he uses the Spirit as reference of wind. And now as these people are being carried along by the Holy Spirit, it's that same imagery to record the words that are in front of you today. But the Holy Spirit doesn't stop just there by the words that he wrote. We must take great understanding of this. He inspired the Bible. He carried these men along. And it forever stands. It's what Isaiah 40 verse 8 says. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. But you see, just as the Holy Spirit carried these men along, think about what it did for you and me. The Holy Spirit and His Word carries us along from our regeneration, doesn't it? He regenerated your soul, that wind that blew. He regenerated your soul. Then what does He do? He doesn't leave you hanging. He indwells you with this same Spirit. And as you walk in this dark place, His Spirit is leading you along because it is His Spirit that inspired these words. It is His Spirit that guides you in this dark path, in this dark world. He carries you along through this world until our future home. And it is there that we will see the logos, the Word, the Son of God, who will illumine that place. And He will carry us along, the Holy Spirit, with His light until we're in the presence of the bright and the morning star. I hope that you see the urgency of His Word. I hope that you can see the assurance, the truth, the infallibility, and the source of our hope. It is our sword. That's what the Bible says when he talks about the, the armor of God. This is our sword. It's active. It's the only active thing we see. It is a sword to which we fight our battles. It is a sword to which we stand. Chapter 2 gives us an ominous approach or an ominous view of who's coming in our lives. And if you don't know the word, it's going to be tough. But this is our light to which we hold from now till forever until we're with him, the true source of light forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, let us never get tired of your word. Let us never get weary of reading your word. Lord, I pray that, that you would touch our hearts today. Lord, and you would convict us, Lord, that when we fall short or we're weak in our reading of your word, where we're flat out lazy in picking up your word, or Lord, where we're arrogant, where we think we can lean into our own understanding instead of going to the truths of your word. Father, let it, us never go to your word as a last resort, not even as a second resort, but let us go every day as a first resort because we know that's where our hope is, that's where our truth is. We thank you that it's been made sure we have hope in this word. 
Lord, let us see the importance of that, especially as we turn the page and we look at these false teachers and prophets and false professing Christians and heretics. And Lord, as we begin to see that they are present with us now, let us find our truth, our anchor, our hope in your word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory, the glory of the Son. We pray these things in your name. Amen.